Our text this morning is Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 36. If you'd like to be turning that direction, it's on page 910. If you happen to be using one of our pew Bibles you'll find in front of you. We're several weeks in now to a series on the book of Acts, taking a look at this account of uh, life in the early church, which is not simply a bit of interesting history and trivia for us, but signs of God's work then and pointers to the way God's at work in our lives and in the church right now. Um, and each week as we've been looking at Acts, we, we've been asking this question. Acts is a great book of mission. And each week we've been looking at different angles on this, that God's on a mission, and that's a mission both to us and through us. God's on this great rescue mission of redeeming the world, of putting all things to rights. For those of us who follow him, he is at work at that in our own lives. And surprisingly, amazingly, he's doing that work in the world, not only to us, but through us in the lives of others as well. So this book of Acts. Uh, this morning, before we get to Acts chapter 2, st- again, starting with verse 36, let's, let's pray and then we'll read our text for the morning. Let's pray together. Father, this is, um, this is your word to us. And some of us here probably um, barely believe that, if at all. Maybe it's been a long time since we've read Scripture and it's come alive for us, since we've sensed your presence in us, in it. Maybe some of us here are utterly unconvinced that you speak to anyone at all and have very little expectation of what we might find here. Some of us are hungry, Lord, and weary after a long week. Some of us are full of faith and encouraged. Wherever we are, You, our covenant God, come meet with us now by the power of your spirit. Open up your word to us that we might know you better, that we might love you more fully, that we might be transformed by your presence. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, Acts chapter 22, or excuse me, chapter 2, starting at verse 36. Uh, Just as a way of preface, if you've been here the last couple weeks, you know we're in the middle of a sermon, the first great Christian sermon by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has come down, and he stood up to preach to thousands of people in Jerusalem. And last week with Ben Robertson, we looked at the body of that speech of Peter's. And so we're going to pick up this morning at kind of his summary statement at the end, and then see what happened next. This great first sermon to these thousands of people, what happens? How's everybody going to respond? So we're going to see this morning. Start at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Uh, The people in this story in Acts have just heard some news that has real significance in their life. And I remember uh, my wife Elizabeth and I, early on in our marriage, we lived in North Carolina. And at the time, we didn't own a television. And this was deeply disturbing to my parents. Um, I don't think it's just because they thought we were strange, though they might have. Um, they might have picked up some of the edge of, of my I don't own a TV superiority over the rest of the world, which I've since repented of. Um, <laughs> We didn't own a TV, but I think at the heart of their concern was, I grew up in Tennessee where my family lives, we're completely landlocked, yet here their, their oldest child now lived in North Carolina where they have things like hurricanes. And, you know, when you live in a landlocked state, you hear about hurricanes and it, and it frightens you. You live in a state like this and you hear about hurricanes and it frightens you because for other reasons. But uh, people in Tennessee are scared of the thought of hurricanes, and my parents thought, what if a hurricane comes and we don't know that it's coming? Now, my wife and I at the time sort of took this communal view of natural disasters. We kind of thought maybe somebody would come warn us. Or <laughs> We had friends in town. Uh, Camper and Heather lived in town with us. They owned a TV. Surely they'd tell us if a hurricane was coming. Uh, but that wasn't enough for my folks, so they, so they bought us a TV. And they wanted us to watch it because though so much of, uh, though so much of the, the media and the news maybe that comes uh, filters through us, into us every week might have very little actual direct bearing on our lives. You know, there are some things that happen that you hear about. There is some news that has drastic implications for your own life. If a hurricane is coming, it has serious implications for you, and you have to do something in response to it. And these people in Jerusalem on this day were receiving news that was not simply... um, extra tidbits of information. It wasn't simply designed to give them um, a, a wider worldview, greater cultural sophistication. They were receiving news that had immediate consequences and um, um, an immediate call on their life. There was something they were hearing that they had to respond to. How do they respond? What do they do when they hear this sermon of Peter's about Jesus and what they've done to him, and Jesus and who he is, and Jesus and his implications and his claim on their own lives? And what we see with these people, starting in verse 36, and as we then see them respond, these are people who have a life-changing experience of Jesus, changes the direction of their lives, and it gives them two entirely new loves. Okay, they have this dramatic experience of Jesus that changes everything. And it manifests itself by, by um, creating in them these two loves. And so, of course, we're going to see that this is true for us, that an experience with Jesus comes in. And is designed to change everything. That we might be pe- become people who love in a whole new way. So first let's look at this life-changing experience. You'll see this verse 36 through 41. The first part of the story here. Verse 36. Again, summary statement of Peter's indictment of his whole sermon. He sums it up like this. And he says, um, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What's he saying? This very crowd was here for uh, the Feast of Pentecost, and roughly 50 days before that, many of them were there for a prior feast, the Feast of Passover. 
So many of these people were a part of the crowd in Jerusalem. The day Jesus was dragged before Pilate, they stood up in, in mass and cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. These were people 50 days before that had been there when Jesus himself was put to death. And Peter puts his finger right on them. He says, you thought you were, you thought you were killing a criminal, but you have, you have killed the Son of God himself, the one that, that God has now made both Lord and Christ. See, for these people, everything in their life was pointing them away from Jesus. They were incredibly religious, upstanding people. I mean, they, were in, they were in town for this festival. They were here to worship God. But the very actions and the very bent of their hearts shows that they were turned in completely the different direction. They thought they were following God, but they, had, but they had turned away from Jesus, the one sent by God. They did not know it, but they were running in entirely the wrong direction. And Peter points it out to them. And they hear his word. Look at verse 37. The turn. How are they going to respond now that they've heard this from Peter? They have a new receptivity to the word of God. Verse 37, it says it cuts them to the heart. And they cry out with this question, what shall we do? You see, Peter's sermon brings this deep conviction into their lives. It brings light streaming in. It helps them to begin to see their life in an entirely new way. They begin to see that they were turned in the wrong direction, that they are turning against God, and they begin to cry out, what are we going to do about this? And they're looking for more than just intellectual information. And we're going to see that their change is deeper than just intellectual assent. C.S. Lewis, in his autobiography of coming to faith called Surprised by Joy, he describes uh, over the course of his life God breaking in in small ways, gradually over time preparing him to come to faith in Jesus. And in the, middle, and in the book, it, the, the narrative starts to speed up in the mid-1920s for Lewis as he sees, as he reflects back, he sees God closing in on him. And he recalls in, in this biography, uh, autobiography a conversation that he had with an old friend. Here's what he says. Uh, this is an old atheist friend, a way that Lewis previously described himself. But he says, early in 1926, the hardest boiled of all the atheists I ever knew sat in my room on the other side of the fire and remarked that the evidence for the historicity of the Gospels was really surprisingly good. Rum thing, he went on, all that stuff about the dying God. Rum thing. It looks, it almost looks as if it had really happened once. To understand the shattering impact of it, you would need to know the man who, was certainly never, who has certainly never since shown any interest in Christianity. Lewis goes on to call this friend of his the cynic of cynics and the toughest of toughs. And here he is having this conversation at this moment in Lewis's life when God is pressing in on him and he talks to this atheist friend who says, the evidence for the historicity of the Gospels is really quite good. This whole thing about the dying God. For him, for his friend, intellectual information, surprising, who would have thought, that brings no real change for him. Intellectual ascent with no real change. Something different was happening in Lewis's life. These people here in our text are cut to the heart by what they hear. It's not simply new information that comes in and begins to tweak their worldview. It's something that comes in and utterly changes everything for them. It's one of those aha and oh no 
And wow, everything changes. It's one of those moments for them. So they cry out to Peter. They say, what are we going to do? And he says, uh, repent, that you might receive the forgiveness of your sins and be baptized. Repent. Turn around. Turn away from all the things that you are following now. Turn away from all the other things that you have put at the center of your life. All of the loves that you are warming yourself by. All the things other than God that you turn yourself to. Not only turn away from those things, repent, turn towards something. Away from those things and to Jesus. What's he saying? That when you repent, when you turn, that something new becomes the center of gravity in your life. And it might have been a myriad of things before, but Peter says to them, now it must be Jesus. And he says, repent and be baptized. He says, Take on this initiatory rite of the, of the Christian faith that shows us the washing and the renewal, the cleansing that comes to us because of the blood of Jesus. He says, be baptized publicly, align yourself both with God and his people. He's telling them to utterly change everything about their lives. And he says you're going to receive a new gift, actually two new gifts from God. He says, in in response, what happens in this? You receive forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. He looks at these people that have been crying, crucify him, crucify him, two months before. He said, you will find forgiveness for all of your sin. That it is wiped away. All of it. Cleansed, taken away because of Jesus. He says, repent and be baptized and you will find that kind of life-giving forgiveness that sinks down into every crook and crevice and valley in your life. He says that's what you'll find. And he says you'll have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not only is your past, the guilt of it, wiped away, but he says the Holy Spirit himself, God's own spirit, will come and live in you. You're going to have a new spiritual life. You're going to come to life for the first time. He says that's what you receive in Jesus if you see as he goes on in his speech, verse 40, with many other words he bore witness, continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Okay, this crooked generation. We talked about this generation. He's not simply speaking about the generation of people alive at the time. He's, he's not simply saying, save yourself from the Gen Xers or from the boomers or the busters or the millennials. What's he saying? All generations are crooked and bent. Save yourself from this. And the only way you're going to find that is in Jesus. And he uses an interesting word. Interesting word. He says crooked, Greek word here, it's the same root that we get the word scoliosis from. Okay, a curvature, a bentness of the spine. And he says this generation, it is morally and spiritually curved out of proportion, bent out of shape. And we need to be unbent. Again, back to C.S. Lewis, in the first book of his uh, science fiction trilogy, the book Out of the Silent Planet, the other inhabitants of our solar system, the ones on the other planets, they look at us on Earth and they call us the bent ones because something has gone terribly wrong in us and we can no longer stand straight, but we have been horribly bent out of shape. We suffer from a curvature of the spine, a bentness away from God, it's only the gospel, Peter says to them, that can unbend you. 
That's exactly what begins to happen to these people. This earth-shattering encounter with God that happens to them in the middle of this sermon, their response to it, changes everything. And it plays out specifically in two new loves that come into their life. Two new loves. The first of these, they have a new love for God. And we see this scattered throughout the remainder of the chapter, verses 42 through 47. They begin to have this deep hunger for God, a deep love for him. That we see both in the way they now receive from God and the way they respond to him. Look at verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves. They gave themselves to. They gave their hearts to. And what were the things they gave themselves to? The first, the apostles' teaching. The apostles, the twelve designated by Jesus to be his authoritative representatives to teach the people about the goodness of God and the salvific, saving graciousness of Jesus who comes into their lives. And it is the apostolic teaching that we have right here in the New Testament passed on for us. These people who have been utterly changed, who have a new love, now have a new love for God's word and for his teaching. They hunger for this. They cry out for it. They give themselves to it. They receive it. Now, the second thing they receive of God's love, look at the, uh, where it says, uh, third thing there, to the breaking of bread. A little more accurately, um, it, it, it literally says, to the breaking of the bread. Many commentators look at this and see not, not simply a comment on sharing meals together, which you'll notice later in the passage they did, but the breaking of the bread was likely a, 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 actually a technical term for the Lord's Supper, for taking the very thing that we're going to take here together today. So imagine that for this first generation of Jewish Christians, the ones who yelled, crucify him, crucify him, the day after Jesus celebrated this meal with his disciples. These people crying out for the death of Jesus, now together receiving the grace of God and celebrating it. And what it brought. Because it was not merely death but resurrection. Not defeat. But new and guaranteed life. He says they celebrated that. And the Lord suffered together. They received from God. It was a manifestation of their love. Second thing though. Not only did they receive. They responded in love. It says they gave themselves again. Verse 42. To the prayers. These were corporate regular prayers by the people. God speaks to us in his word. He speaks to us in this sacrament, the Lord's Supper. And prayer is one of the ways we respond and speak back. This God who speaks into their lives brought in a new love for them and compelled them to pray. Not prayer a new duty, but prayer a new means of communication with their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They responded in prayer. Verse 46, if you look down, they gave, things they gave themselves to, that they worship together daily in the temple. One of the responses, one of the manifestations of this new love in their life is that they desired to worship this God they now loved. The God against whom they once shook their fist, the God who was once their enemy, though they did not know it. A God now who has showered his love on them in Jesus, and they respond in worship. Verse 47, daily praising God. They have this impulse to praise. So one of the results for them is that they, they get this, this new love for God. Another way of saying this, and maybe a helpful way for us, is, is that they have a new gospel softness in their lives. A new softness in their response to God. A new love for Him. 
And it brings up the question, do we, do we have that kind of gospel softness in our lives? One that's not simply sees our lives now as ushered into a new set of duties, but into a new set of privileges. One that responds to the love of God for us with love for him. Is it at work in our lives? We mentioned before, these people prior to this sermon, they were very religious people. They had come earlier in in chapter 2. We see this list of all the countries they'd come from, including Rome, 2,000 miles away. They've come thousands of miles not on vacation to Jerusalem, but on a religious pilgrimage. They are more diligent in their religiosity than probably most of us have ever been. They did the religious thing. But no real love, and now they have it. A new softness, a new love. Not simply a new duty or a new obligation or a new direction for life, but a new love. New love comes for them and comes for us. From an ever-increasing understanding, recognition, taking in of what Jesus has done for us. The forgiveness that he's brought into our lives. Why do our hearts so often feel so cold? What can we possibly do about it? Why so lifeless? Might be a lot of reasons. Perhaps it's this, maybe, maybe this. Maybe it's a failure to own up to the real condition of our lives. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus has this interaction with a prostitute, a repentant prostitute, who bursts into the middle, of a, the middle of a party to which she was not invited. She casts herself at Jesus' feet. She begins to weep. She takes this jar of incredibly expensive perfume and does the most wasteful thing imaginable. She breaks it, and it runs over Jesus' feet. And the good, solid religious people look at her and say, what a waste. And doesn't Jesus know what kind of person this is who is sitting here at his feet, crying uncontrollably? Well, Jesus has a conversation with the host of that meal, Simon the Pharisee, the religious professional. Jesus says this to him, he who is forgiven little loves little. He who has little realization of their great need little realization for their desperate straits is going to have little appreciation and love for the one who comes in to rescue them from that. Thomas Watson, Puritan, put it this way, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. You know, maybe we talk about hating our sin For many of us, maybe what's really happening is we hate the effects of our sin. We hate the stuff that it does. We don't hate our sin when we lose our temper, let our words fly. We hate the embarrassment that comes from having shown ourselves to be what we are. And we hate the fact that we have to then go apologize to someone. Maybe we don't hate the little indiscretions of our lives. We hate hate it when they are exposed and brought to the light and the embarrassment and the shame that come our way. But it's a very different thing than hating the sin itself. I've been reminded of that this week, of the ways I so easily hate the effects of my sin more than I hate the sin itself. What does the gospel tell us? That when we have hearts that are now brought alive with real love for our Father and real love for our Savior, 
then we begin to hate our sin for an entirely different reason, not simply for the effects of it, but because it grieves the heart of God, and we care what God thinks now, because he's loved us, and we're responding in love. That's an entirely different thing than hating the effects of your sin as we begin to hate our sin when sin itself becomes bitter, not only in our mouth, but because we know it's bitter in the mouth of God, Christ will begin to become sweet. Because at that very moment of bitterness, he comes in and rescues and forgives and saves us, draws us close. Our forgiving Father does not give up, but the one who loves us continues to love us, continues to pour out his forgiveness in our lives. And so it puts our obedience on an entirely new footing, a response of love, a demonstration of love for our God and Father. So maybe that's it for some of us. Maybe we're not owning up to the reality of our condition, or maybe our hearts are cold because we don't believe that God's grace can really be this free or could really apply to one as messed up as I am. It might apply for other people, but not for myself. And the thing about this, it sounds like such great humility. My sin is so great. But it's really just pride wearing more somber colors. Because what are you saying? Everything that this Bible testifies to, everything the Spirit of God screams out in our life, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, even the worst of them. It is the depth of his grace. It's never outmatched by the depth of our sin. And we look at God and say, no, 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 but you don't understand my sin. It's worse than you can handle Jesus. It's not humility, it's the depths of pride, and maybe we need to turn from that if we don't think Christ can meet us in the middle of our own condition. Or maybe for some of us, it's an unwillingness to accept something that we can't earn. Maybe we desire not repentance and forgiveness, but penance. Give me something to do. I know I've done wrong and I feel bad about it. Tell me what to do. What happens for you when you sin and you know it, when you really blow it again and again? When you fall into that old, familiar, repeated pattern of life again? When you fall and fail and you're again surprised by your sin? What has to take place before you feel any sense of God's peace again? Feeling bad enough? For long enough? It's going to take me two days to get over this one. A set time of misery. Or maybe a, a frenzied effort to atone for what you did. I'll, I'll make it up. I'll make it up to you. Whoever I've offended, I'll make it up to God. Or maybe desperate vows to God. I will never do this again. May my vow save me. But you know, if, you in, if you're following this, it leads ultimately only to anger and to disillusionment. When will I have performed enough? When will I have accomplished enough? When will I have been sorry enough? Martin Luther, uh, prior to the Reformation, he was an Augustinian monk, incredibly devoted man. He was renowned even in his own monastery for the length of his confessions. He would see his confessor regularly and would spend hours in confession, rehearsing every last little bit of his life that day terrified that he was going to overlook some small offense against God that would damn him forever. Even his confessor wearied of this. But Luther couldn't shake it. I stand before a holy God. 
I have to confess it all. And at one point his confessor asked him this, Luther, tell me about your love for God. This is Luther, the dedicated one. And he says, love God, I hate God. Because all he knew was God is the exacting judge and no way to stand. What does God say to us? Not penance. But he offers us what Peter says in his sermon. Real repentance. Real turning from our sin. Because this same Luther who was so crushed by his confessions. As he came to understand the grace of God in his life. As he stood at the door of Wittenberg. Um, and nailed up the 95 theses. The, the shot that started the European Reformation. The very first one of those. Number one of 95 says, all of life is repentance. Not the repentance he knew groveling as a monk, but the free repentance of an accepted sinner who is now free to come to our Father, free to say what is true, doesn't have to hide anything, because the grace of Jesus comes and meets at every possible turn. All of life is repentance. It was true for these people who converted for the very first time, and it continues to be true for us as God's people throughout our lives that we are people always and desperately in need of Jesus' grace, and he offers it to us. Real repentance, not penance. These people are changed. They're given this new love for God, this new gospel softness in their life. They're also given a new love, secondly and briefly, they're given a new love for God's people, for people, Again, this is in verses 42 and 40 through 47. First, they're given this new love for other believers. These people shared Jesus. That's what they had in common. 3,000 people in this crowd don't know each other. What bonds them together? The work of Jesus in their lives. And that, ex that expresses itself now for them in shared worship and shared lives. They go to the temple together praising God. They partake in the prayers together. Where would you find them every day? Sharing a meal together with glad and generous hearts. This word that we've got, fellowship, um, Greek words koinonia, means sharing. And, and the way we use that word sometimes, when we talk about fellowship, we talk about essentially this sense of like deep connection I feel with other people. I really feel a sense of fellowship with other people. Well, well the word itself actually is, is one step before that. The word here for fellowship, it has to do with the sharing that brings about those feelings of connection. Okay, you know, use an example. If you're standing next to a friend of yours and you both kind of lean in until you're, you're touching shoulders, okay, you would say that you, you feel the touch and the closeness of your friend. Well, you feel that because you're leaning on him, <laughs> because he's really right there. Okay, but you get that feeling because of the fact of your leaning in. And that's what these people were doing. They were leaning into connection with each other. And because of that, they felt this deep sense of connection. And it played out in deep sense of connection. Sharing of a magnitude that maybe some of us sort of scratch our heads, that anytime somebody was in need, they sold stuff so that they could meet the need of that person. They were utterly committed to the good of the other people around them. Where in the world does a love like that come from? Only because God had broken in on their lives. Not only God freed them to love himself, God's now freed them to love other people as well. He's brought a gospel softness into their life as they react, react and interact with the people around them. 
Is it bringing that kind of softness into our lives? Is the love of Jesus bringing that kind of gospel softness into our love for other people, other of God's people? Is it showing up in the way that we talk to each other? Is it showing up in the way that we interact when we have been offended by somebody else? Are we people more and more who are learning to give each other the benefit of the doubt? Are we people more and more committed to the good of each other? Not a good that would be blind to faults and not a good that would sweep things under the carpet, but committed to the good of others in such a way that we might generously and open-heartedly and humbly come to each other when we've been wronged. Do we have a gospel softness in our heart that is transforming the way we look at and think about and interact with fellow believers around us? Is the gospel coming in like that for us? But it gives them not only a new love for other believers. Lastly, we see it also gives them a new love for those who were not believers. Look at verse 47. It talks about the contagious witness of the church. Day by day, God was adding to the number of those who were following him. They were enjoying this incredible reputation in the city as these people who have been transformed by the love of God and it was drawing other people in. Is the gospel creating in us a gospel softness for those who don't know Jesus? Is it giving us a heart for the people around us is it bearing fruit in our lives by us getting involved in the lives of our neighbors? Is it bearing fruit in hospitality, in service, in witness? Is the gospel giving us not just a new conviction about evangelism or a new burden for it or a new duty? Is it giving us a new love for the lost? Is it giving us a gospel softness to those who don't know Jesus? In Williamsburg, our whole area in the world? Is it changing us like that? These people in this passage, they have this life-changing, life-transforming encounter with God that creates in them two new loves, a whole new love for God and a whole new love for other people. Do we have this? Is it at work in our lives? If not, what is standing in the way of that? Let's just close with this. Look at verse 39. The promise is for you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would continually bring us back to the goodness and love of Jesus. And we pray that the gospel would sink down into our bones more and more and that it might bring out in us a new love for you and a new love for others, a new softness in us created by the gospel that we might not only be but show ourselves to be transformed people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.